Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. 
So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer, that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what First Thessalonians is all about. Isn't that good? I love that. So anyways, uh, you ever have that moment when you go backstage uh, to blow your nose, but then you forget to turn your mic off? Yeah, that happened. All right, 1 Thessalonians 1. Humility is flowing. 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love 
and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, just speak to us today through your word. Reveal and illuminate all that you'd want to say and speak to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, grace to you and peace. Now, if you're reading a letter from Paul, you're probably going to come up against these two words, grace and peace, grace to you, which would be a common greeting in the Greco-Roman culture in which Paul lived, and then, of course, peace, a very common Jewish greeting, shalom, we've all heard that word before, but then Paul comes in, he puts this Christian spin on grace and peace, he actually is greeting you with God's grace, with God's peace. If you ever receive an email from me, there's a good chance, not all the time, but a good chance you'll see that I signed it at the very end, grace and peace, Pastor Dan. There's a really, uh, actually, actually a specific reason that I do that. Uh, when I was in college over at the University of Wyoming, I was part of, it's kind of a, a mouthful, but I was part of the Rocky Mountain Baptist Coalition uh, church plant. So Rocky Mountain Baptist Coalition Church. And, and, and it was a new church, and I was part of, part of the team there. And, and the pastors, they just blew me away. At, at the time, I was kind of an honorary and stubborn Kid, I, I still, now I'm just an, uh, you know, honoring, stubborn adult. But uh, back then, I, I would, you know, frustrate them from time to time. But they would always just come in and they'd say, grace and peace, grace and peace. At the end of Pastor Raul's messages, he'd say, grace and peace. Uh, Pastor Tony, the worship director there, when we would meet and, and have our uh, discussions over coffee, he would always say, Dan, grace and peace. But again, I, I would exhaust them. I, I would frustrate them. I would say things that even hurt them. And yet, uh, it was, it's incredible. As I look back, they just stayed consistent with their love for me. They just continued to extend this grace and this peace to me. And, and it really had an effect on me, church. Right? Even when I wasn't acting the best, they would extend God's grace and peace to me. You have anyone else in your life uh, like that, that has extended that grace and that peace, God's grace God's peace. Aren't you thankful for them? And so I write in these emails, and by the way, it's not an automatic response. I make sure that I actually have to write, because you know you have those signatures on your emails that can just be automatic. No, I want to make sure I actually have to type it, because don't you know that sometimes you get that email, right? That email just rides you up, right? It's that email, and you're like, man, I am going to respond to them. And what does grace and peace do? It checks my attitude, checks my thoughts, checks my spirit, Right? Am I going to show grace and peace? I write it. I'd encourage you, maybe try it out. Just write it. It forces you. It checks your attitude, checks your heart. Before I push the send button, right? That send button, that's a powerful button. <laughs> Before I send this email, is this letter, is this email demonstrating the grace and peace of God? And so for me, I just say it's a filter. It's a filter for everything else that you find in the email. And I'm not perfect in this. Of course, I'm not perfect in this. But I'd encourage you, just give it a try. If you don't want to do it in email, uh, just do it out loud. Maybe in the lobby as you leave here. Uh, just grace and peace to you, my brother. Grace and peace to you, my sister. I, I'd encourage you as you try that. It will change the atmosphere. I just guarantee you. It will change the atmosphere when you extend God's grace and peace. So he says, grace and peace to you. He says, we give thanks to God Always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We give thanks to God always for how many of us? All of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So grace and peace, my brothers, my sisters. But man, I'm just so thankful to God for you. Right? Praise God that he made you. And then he says, you know, you need to know this. I'm always praying for you. You are constantly in my prayers. 
Isn't that just a tad bit encouraging? Right? Have you ever had someone come up to you and say something like that? It just builds you up. Jeremy, where's Jeremy? He's in the back doing sound today. Jeremy, I tell you, he wrote me an encouraging email this last week, and it came at just the right time. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but he, in, in the email, this is what he said. He didn't even know I was preaching on it. He goes, I am just so thankful to have you as my pastor, my boss, and my friend. Now, after I read that, I just want you to know I didn't give him a raise because, wow, that was really good. But he said, no, I'm just so thankful to have you as my pastor, boss, and friend. And then at the email, he even writes, grace and peace, Jeremy. When was the last time you reached out to someone with that kind of attitude, in that way? Right? Think about that. When was the last time you just told someone, man, I'm just so thankful to God for you? Right? Where you speak in a way that just extends grace and extends peace, but also extends just an attitude of thankfulness. Give it a shot. Right? Just grace to you, my friend. Peace to you, my friend. I'm praying for you. I'm for you. I'm thankful for you. Man, if we just did this for one person this week, I was thinking about it earlier if just one each one of us i mean how many on a sunday morning 150 of us if we just each of us went to one person what a difference we could make and i don't want you to take this lightly because in 2018 i I think this is serious stuff have you noticed the way our society is these days we have become extremely good at pointing out what's wrong with others like we have become professionals at communicating what we aren't thankful for in each other instead of pointing out maybe and highlighting and maybe uh, just putting out in lights what we're thankful for in each other. You see this in marriages. Mary and I, we've, we've seen this from time to time where you just, yeah, maybe you've seen this before in your own marriage. It creeps in where you just start getting fixated on what's wrong in a marriage. You ever been there before? Where you just cannot think of anything what's right, right? You're, you're not even close to celebrating any good thing. You're just fixated on what's wrong. Be careful. I just encourage, if you're creeping down that road, be careful if you're going down that road. It is a dangerous road when all that you can see is someone and what's wrong with them instead of what is right. I mean, just think of your thoughts, your attitude, your spirit. Think about how that just affects you. It takes you down to a place where all you can think are things that are kind of sour about another person. I'm just telling you, when all you can think is sour things about another person, there is no good thing, not enough good. There's no amount of good things that they could ever do to get you to change your mind. Be careful if you're going down that road. In my profession, I I see this all the time, just this negative attitude towards another human being where all you can see is what they're doing wrong. But Paul, is that the, the route Paul's taken here? Not at all. He, he goes a completely different way. He says, no, I'm thankful for you. I remember when Mary and I began our Bible-based marriage counseling, and we've been doing that for, what, 12, 13 years now. And, and he encouraged us to just begin to start thanking God for the good things in each other. Right? To see the positive things and to have a positive attitude. Do you have a positive attitude towards your spouse? Do you have a positive attitude towards your kids? Do you have a positive attitude towards your boss, towards your employee? A positive perspective. It just changes the atmosphere of anything and everything. And for our marriage, it just changed the atmosphere of our marriage. 
So you look at this letter, these people in Thessalonica, I love that a couple of the guys, you see them in the bandages, and they look like they got punched, and then it looked like maybe a rock was about to hit them. I just they're like, oh, thank you, Paul. But I thank God for you. I'm thanking God for you. I'm praising God for you. And as Paul speaks these things to the Thessalonians, do you think they're just a tad bit encouraged? You know it. I mean, just it builds them up. So he says, we thanks God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering, I mean, it just gets better, church, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to break that down just a little bit. He says, we remember before our God and Father three things. First, the Thessalonians' work of faith. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Two, your labor of love. And three, your steadfastness of hope. In Jesus. So now he's getting specific, isn't he? He's getting specific on why he's so thankful to God for the Thessalonians. It's because of their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Well, let's start here with work of, of faith. Everybody say work of faith. Let's try that again. Work of faith. There we go. I love this phrase because sometimes when you use the word faith, right, you just got to have faith or you just... You know, believe in faith. It can kind of sound like something that just kind of happens in your head, right? It's just your thoughts, your emotions, right? Just have faith. Paul's saying your faith is not just a thought. It's not just an emotion. It's not just kind of this passive virtue. But faith, uh, it actually has some legs, right? It's active. It's moving. It's the work of faith. Paul talks a little bit more about this work of faith in verse 9, and we'll talk about this next week. But he says that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So you're heading in one direction, like the video talked about. You were worshiping these Greek and Roman gods. You were just doing what everybody else was doing in your culture. But then in faith, you turned. By the way, for the Thessalonians, that cost them something, didn't it? It cost them relationships. It cost them friendships. Maybe even brought some persecution into their life. But they turned from one way of living, and now they're serving the true and living God, waiting for the return of Jesus. It's this beautiful work of faith. Can any of you relate to what Paul is talking about? You know, I think it's something to consider in your own life. Many people make that confession of faith. Right, where you put your faith in Jesus. But then how many people make the confession of faith but then try to live their life in the same way that they've always lived it? But that isn't faith, right? Faith isn't merely belief, like believing that something is true, like believing that the sky is blue. No, faith, faith, it's something that moves. Faith is belief in action. It moves you. It changes you. Faith, it makes you turn from what is wrong to what is right. Faith, it turns from dark and hurtful things to things that are right and healthy and good. Faith, it turns. It turns from worshiping idols, worshiping the gods and things of this world, and it turns. And instead, it turns to the true living God. Church, I want to challenge us in this. Faith is active. Faith, it moves us. It challenges us in our very core of our being. In the book of Hebrews, look at what it says. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Anybody, what did Noah do by faith? He built an ark. 
He built an ark, by the way, while the ground was still dry. And he spent years, decades, building this ark. The next verse says, By faith Abraham, Abraham, he obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith he went out, everybody say this with me together, not knowing where he was going. Did you hear that? Abraham, he believed God. He trusted in God. But his belief, it compelled him to go out, even though the Bible says he doesn't even know where he's going. But by faith, man, in the faith that I have in you, God, and the promises of God, I'm going to go even though I don't know where I'm going. When was the last time, by faith, you went out even though you didn't know where you were going? Right? Just think about it. Where is that work of faith on display in your life. What is God calling you to? I was thinking about it in my own life because, man, I'm still in process. I'm still on the journey. Man, just those areas where I need to turn from idols. I need to turn from the things of this world and instead turn to God in a way that's more than just in your head, right? More than just in your thoughts, more than just your emotions, but in a practical, physical way where you put feet to your faith. Reminds me of uh, Micah's dad. I was thinking about your dad this week. Uh, Ten years ago, he prophesied over me when we were in Spokane that I was going to record an album. And then he runs out to the parking lot. He says, actually, Dan, it's not album. It's albums. And come on, church, three albums later, praise the Lord. But you know, at that point, when he spoke that into me, I had faith for those albums. I was like, okay, here we go. But don't you know, albums don't make themselves. There's a lot of questions there, right? How am I going to pay for it? Where am I going to record it? What was I going to record? I didn't even have any songs written. There was nothing to record. But by faith, I began to move forward. In my second CD, in the CD jacket, some of you don't even know what a CD is anymore, but whatever. But in the CD jacket, I wrote this. I said, inspiration quickly turned into perspiration. You ever been there before, right? Inspiration quickly turned into perspiration. See, a part of faith is hearing from the Lord, right? Being inspired, answering that call of God in your life. But then you go to work, right? You go to work. You move forward in faith, walking by faith with God. If you're taking notes, maybe there's something you know. You just know it. God has called you to it, and it's time to put your feet to your faith. Jot it down. See what next steps of faith God is calling you to. So good. So he, he says, remember, uh, he remembers their work of faith. And then he says, we remember your labor of love. Everybody say, labor of love. Yeah, labor of love. That's actually a phrase we uh, are familiar with, right? It's still a phrase that uh, we use today. When you do something for somebody or do uh, something just kind of, you know, above and beyond, maybe you don't get paid for it, you're just over the top, right? And someone's like, man, you didn't have to do that. You go, oh, I know. It's just a labor of love. So why did you do it? You did it because you love that person. In my family, uh, we have this tradition, uh, all the brothers and sisters and the spouses and a few others, I think there's 15, 16 of us now in, in this group, we make presents for each other. And there's quite a few of us, and some years, I'm just, if I'm honest, I think it would be easier just to buy presents or just not do presents, uh, you know, all together. But we're still doing it, and we've been doing it this way for almost 20 years. But this year, it was kind of cool. I made these hats for the guys, so the hats said their names on it, which pretty much means they'll never wear these hats ever, because who wears a hat with your name on it? But, um, and then my wife, her uh, gift to the ladies was much 
it was better. Um, it had a necklace with the, their children's names stamped into the necklace. It was just really uh, cute and thoughtful. It was a labor of love. Mine just felt good that I gave them something. But hers was a labor of love. But think about it. Our labor, our energy, our effort, it was compelled by love. And for Paul, he hears this good report of the Thessalonians, and he hears about their love and their labor of love. It's hard when we talk about love in 2018. Love gets thrown around uh, a lot in our culture for a lot of different things. You know, I love popsicles. I love sunny days. I love the Mariners. Uh, if you didn't hear me last week, uh, the Mariners are going to win the World Series this year, so you can write that down. Um, but we just throw out love, 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 love. But biblical love, it, it, we got to understand this. Biblical love, it's more than just having kind of fond thoughts about something or someone. Godly love, Christian love, it is actually demonstrated in a willingness to sacrifice for one another. You see this in a lot of scriptures. You see this demonstrated from from God himself, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John tells us this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And you and I, all of us, what, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You just go two more verses after that, and he says, Dear children, this is so good, let us not just love love with our words or with our speech, but with what? With our actions and in truth. Do you see that? Do you just see that labor of love? Not just a thought, not just an emotion, feeling, but it's an action. It's an action. And by the way, the word that Paul uses there for labor, it isn't just some kind of cute, fuzzy word. It's actually kind of serious. The word he uses for labor actually means labor. One commentary says it this way. This is so good. He says, the word conveys the idea of arduous toil involving sweat and fatigue. It emphasizes the weariness which follows as a result of the straining of all of one's powers to the utmost. That's the labor of love. I want you to hear that. It conveys the idea of arduous toil involving sweat and fatigue. It emphasizes the weariness which follows as a result of the straining of all of one's powers to the utmost. I mean, that's intense. Do you see that, church? That's a costly love. It's truly a labor of love. I've witnessed this kind of love in several of you as you've walked your parents through the end stages of their lives. That's not an easy assignment. It's full of sweat. It's full of fatigue and toil. It's full of weariness. Some of the most exhausted and tired faces that I've seen are those who are taking care of their elderly parents. I saw this in my own parents as they cared for my grandparents on my mother's side. And yet, in the midst of the stress, intense stress, right? You know what it's like to try to manage an estate and manage some of those bigger decisions. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the exhaustion, There's a love that you have, right? It rises up for your parents. It rises up for your mom and for your dad. As Christians, where does that love even come from? That love comes from Jesus himself. It compels you. I've talked to so many of you, and and you've said it's one of the hardest things you have ever done. In the truest sense, it's a labor of love. But I think this kind of love, it's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging for us. Because in many ways, as human beings, we want to love, but we want to love in a way that doesn't cost us anything. We try to love in a way that doesn't include fatigue, that doesn't include exhaustion. That's why helping someone move 
it's pretty healthy to help someone move, right? If you're just struggling with how to love, just sign up to help somebody move. Because have you noticed that moving is hard work? Moving, it's inconvenient work. Moving, it usually takes longer than you thought it would. Moving, there's always at least one or two things that go terribly wrong when you try to move. And have you noticed that only half of the people that actually said they were going to help move actually come to move, which makes it even harder, more intense for those who actually showed up. Those are healthy situations for us to be in as Christians, right? It's healthy because it cost us something. There's a good chance that next morning when you woke up, you probably felt sore, didn't you? You probably felt tired. It's a sacrificial love. It's a labor of love. It reminds me of one of the great events we do here at LifeSpring. Ever since I became lead pastor back in 2012, we hold a yearly volunteer appreciation event. Raise your hand if you've ever been to the volunteer appreciation event. Absolutely. One of the most fun things we do. Uh, last year, it was 70s theme, which was fun. I got to wear my little 70s wig and wear my bright orange uh, polyester suit. Just a whole a lot of fun. Here's the thing, crazy part about it. It's on Sunday night, which means Monday comes, right? A work day comes the next morning. But that's cool. I get Mondays off. But do you know who doesn't get Mondays off? Is the volunteer leadership team who puts on the volunteer appreciation event. The absurdity of that is awesome, right? Our volunteer leadership team puts on... The volunteer appreciation event. So Jeremy, Mike, and I, we, yeah, we work hard, whatever, but we're sleeping in the next day. We're drinking our coffee, right, watching a little Good Morning America. But the volunteer leadership team who puts on the volunteer appreciation event, they got to wake up the next morning, don't they? They have to go to their real job. Some of them have to wake up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning and go to work. That kind of love, church, it fires me up. It fires me up. I want to read an email I sent back to the leadership team. This was uh, May of 2013. So this was the first uh, one of these that we put on. And I sent this email to them, probably from my PJs on a Monday morning with coffee in my hand. But this is what I sent to them. I said, I just wanted to say, way to go. I can honestly say in the nine years of being a pastor, that was the finest demonstration of leadership pouring into their teams that I've ever seen. I loved how each one of you stretched yourselves beyond what is comfortable, stretched yourselves beyond what is convenient, and instead you went the extra mile of sharing the love of Christ with the members of LifeSpring Church. You poured yourself out. And the evening, it was absolutely beautiful with how the tables were set up in long rows with amazing decorations all over the place with an incredible photo booth and a top-of-the-line dinner and dessert, and the entertainment was great as well. I am truly humbled by the light of Christ that is evident in each of you. I know you were probably exhausted, and I know your work probably came way too early this morning, but I can guarantee you that the deposit of love that you gave last night will not go unnoticed by this church. It showed a commitment on your part, and people will follow leaders that are committed and believe in what they're doing. Thank you again. To God be the glory. Grace and peace, Pastor Dan. It's a labor of love. It's a love that costs you something. And all, all we have to do is look around in this world, right? There, there's opportunities upon opportunities in this world for us to express this kind of love. But I think, I even think about my own life. Sometimes we can convince ourselves, you know, it's just not for me, right? We make excuses for not expressing this kind of love. Whether it's, I'm too old for this, or I didn't get paid for this, or I'm too busy for this. And you know what? Maybe you're right. 
And, and you need wisdom and you need to be wise and don't say yes to everything. There's certain things you got to say no to. But as Christians, there also has to be those times when we say yes. Right? Where Christ's love so compels us that we begin to demonstrate this labor of love. So in your own life, even as you're sitting here this morning, let the Lord just begin to show you where that might be for you. So he remembers their work of love, their labor, or their work of faith, labor of love. And then third thing, steadfastness of hope. Everyone say steadfastness of hope. Yeah, and it's a hope that's in Jesus. I adore this phrase. The New Living Translation says it this way. It's an enduring hope that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So think about it. It's a hope that isn't just here one day and gone the next. Right? Where you're like, man, I have all this hope in Jesus. Then you turn around and you're like, there is no hope. Though, have you ever been there before? I mean, all of us have. But no, that's not the hope that the Thessalonians had. They had a Thessalonians that actually, or they had a hope that actually survived the highs and the lows of life. It was a hope that survived the, the waves of life. It was a hope that survived the trials of life, right? Nothing could steal or take away the hope that they had because of Jesus. I love what Michael Green writes in regards to this steadfastness. He says, the mature Christian does not give up. His Christianity is like the steady burning of a star rather than the ephemeral brilliance and speedy eclipse of a meteor. That's the kind of hope we have, church, the steady burning of a star. And remember, these Thessalonians, this steadfastness of hope, it's not because everything was going great for them, right? They're actually under an incredible amount of pressure. They're facing many trials, and yet they do not lose hope. In fact, a couple verses later, this is how Paul describes these Christians in Thessalonica. He says, you received the word in much affliction. I want you guys to catch that phrase, much affliction. That's where they received the word. But with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That is amazing to me. These are a people who are able to receive the word, the good news of Jesus, with much affliction, but at the same time with much joy. This is a people who had hope. Think in your own life. Where are you trusting in Jesus, even though it seems everything is going wrong? Or, yeah, man, I got affliction but I also got joy. Think about that in your own life. I actually saw this kind of hope on display just a couple of weeks ago. There's a lady in our church. She texted me. She's in the midst of this horrible, a horrific situation. She describes her situation. It just breaks your heart as you're reading about it. But then at the end of her text, this is what she writes. She says, and yet despite all of this, I have joy bubbling out of me. Come on. I mean, this is someone who has hope in Jesus. And that's who we are. That's who we are, Life Spring. We have hope in Jesus. Even when things aren't going the way we want them to go, we have joy in the Lord and we have hope in the Lord. And a hope that, here's the deal, it's a hope that says, yeah, maybe we'll die and then we get to go be with Jesus. Or it's a hope that says we're going to live, Jesus comes back and Jesus is going to come to us and we still get to be with Jesus. Where's our hope? Who's our hope? Jesus. We get to be with Jesus. Either way, we're with Jesus. We have this confident and sure hope in our mighty Lord, Jesus Christ. This is how Paul writes it in Romans 5. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems, when we run into trials, for we know that they help us develop 
endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character, you know what it does? It strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope, it will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loved us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Did you catch it? We have a hope. I have a hope that does not lead to disappointment. It's a joy-filled hope that leads to salvation, that always leads to everlasting life in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with hope, and we all struggle with hope from time to time, that's part of our humanity, I think. That's why we have to actually turn to God in that work of faith. But I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with hope, find someone maybe who's been on the journey just a little bit longer than you. Buy them a cup of coffee. Let them share their story with you. I think about my parents and all that they've walked through in their life, so many trials, and yet they are a people of steadfast hope. Their faith, their hope encourages me when I talk with them. We have a special guest today, Pastor John over from the Presbyterian Church. He's on vacation. He tried to sneak in without me saying anything, but sorry. Uh, Welcome, Pastor John, everybody. Well, do you know he's one of the biggest encouragements in my life? Uh, probably once every two, three weeks, he takes me out to taco time. And he just looks at me, and, he, and then he looks again. He has this look where he can just look through me. But he's become a safe place for me to share what's going on in my life. And he's been doing this a little bit longer than I have. And so he's able to tell me stories. I love his stories. He just tells me these stories of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness. And it encourages me. Maybe there's a specific area like that. For me, you know, it's being a pastor. I I need some of those people to talk to me about it. Sometimes I get discouraged. Sometimes I get really down. Praise the Lord for the pastors in my life. Also, God gave me two brothers, right? Two older brothers who have been pastors and are still pastors a little bit further down the road. And so they encourage me. They remind me of the hope that I have in Jesus, a hope that does not lead to disappointment. Just think about in your own life. Right? Just think of someone that maybe could take you out for coffee, take you to taco time. Let them share their story. Let them encourage you so that a steadfast hope would be produced in you. You know, even now, I, I'm just thinking as I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, if the Lord brings someone to mind, just jot it down, write it down, and ask them out. And just let them, hey, would you just share your story with me? Church, I'm excited. I really am. I, I'm truly excited. I'm looking forward to this new season at LifeSpring, and we really are in a new season. I, I'm encouraged by this journey. It, it started so well, First Thessalonians. I think it's going to be powerful for us. Uh, read the letter. If you haven't read it, read it. Read it again and again and again. Just let it permeate your thoughts and your attitudes and your emotions, but actually also influence your action, right? Let it be more than just head knowledge, but heart knowledge that actually influences the things that we say, but also the things that we do. God wants to encourage you with this letter. I bet you there's some people in your life that God wants to encourage this letter with as well. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your employee. Maybe it's your family member, your neighbor. Maybe it's your son or your daughter or your spouse, whoever it is. Invite them to church. God loves them, and he wants to encourage you, but he also wants to encourage them with the good news of Jesus Christ. And just with three verses, I I don't know about you, but God is speaking. That's just three verses. Are you kidding me? And he speaks so loudly and so clearly. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to ask the worship team, come on up. And as they come back up, I'm going to read this scripture. Just three verses. Again, one, two, three. I'm going to read them again. But as I do, just let the Lord, let the Holy Spirit just begin to highlight Maybe the word or words that are especially for you. 
Maybe it's one area or two areas where God is just speaking to you. As Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Let the word of Christ move us forward into what and who he has called us to be. Maybe close your eyes as I read this one more time. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, peace to you. We give thanks to God always for every single one of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word is so powerful to us. Thank you for this opportunity to remember that we are to be a people of grace and peace. Even sometimes mornings can be hard when we wake up and sometimes we'll wake up in bitterness or we just call it being grumpy. But we need your spirit to soften our hearts so that we begin to extend your grace and your peace to others. And God, we want to be a thankful people. As a staff, we were talking about it this week, that we want to thank you, God. We want to be a people of gratitude, of thanksgiving. We, we don't want to be known as a people who just highlight everything that's wrong. But instead, we want to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And Lord, show us how to be thankful for those in our lives. Show us what it means to be thankful for this church, for the community that you've placed us in. Show us what it means to be thankful today, Lord. And God, show us what it looks like to walk out our faith. Show us what it looks like to labor in love, the love that we have received from you. And God, show us what it looks like to have a steadfast, enduring hope where we do not waver, we do not get tossed to and fro, but we stay steady as we keep our eyes on the prize and we look to you, Jesus, our true living hope that whether I die today, I'm with you, or whether you come back, I'm still with you. Either way, I'm with you, Jesus. You truly are my hope. Encourage us with your word today. Lead us by your word today. Empower us by your word and your spirit today. Lord, help us. In your name we pray. Amen.